feels like forever since I've done one of these episodes. I was going to say, it, it, when 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 did you? When were you in the last one of these? Episode 8 of the OSIN Bunker podcast. Uh, this week uh, it's myself, uh, Jordan, and Technical. Uh, Tom, unfortunately, is not with us this week uh, due to some important uh, exams that he's got going on. Um, but you'll have the pleasure of us three this week discussing the G7 uh, conference that's currently going on, uh, the whole Afghanistan situation, and a variety of other topics uh, from the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so um, I guess, you know, let's just start off for right now with the G7, um, because it's going to be the easiest for us to get out of the way, because obviously it's happening in certain certain members' backyards. Um, so, well, relative backyards, but um, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting to see how things are evolving there. Um, not a return to normalcy per se, because everything's sort of been super weird over the past year, but definitely a return to your standard um, diplomatic conferences that, that we've seen in the past. So obviously we've got at the G7, we've got the standard G7 ministers, and we've also got a bunch of the invited guests who made it over yesterday, such as, such as South Africa and India. Yeah, the Australians the, are there. Um, yes. Yeah, you've got the Australian uh, Prime Minister, uh, South Korea's President, and South Africa's President attending in person, um, and India's Prime Minister is attending uh, virtually um, due to the, the ongoing COVID situation over there. Yeah, but as as of right now, um, definitely this meeting is not just the G7. I mean, yes, it's the G7, but it has attracted a number of different dignitaries and leaders from around the world um, just to, I, I guess, sort of have the first somewhat normal meeting since the pandemic struck, you know, happened since the pandemic started, you know, screwing up everything. Um, not saying it's maybe a victory lap for defeating the pandemic, because that would be a bit early, as we've seen the Indian prime minister is attending remotely due to the the pandemic in um, India. So I, I would say it definitely seems like, um, at least for right now, they're trying, one of the first things they're trying to hash out is global vaccine distribution. Um, the US at this point has a lot more vaccines than people to actually vaccinate. Um, so we're definitely seeing um, that as sort of a, um, how do I put this, a, a cleaving issue among some of the countries attending. Certainly because the G7 is more, you know, those first world nations that um, have the largest economies. And so by the nature of how they've, you know, rolled out their vaccination programs um, are also the first nations to really get, you know, a very high level of vaccinations out. Um so we're gonna we're gonna see that over the next few days. the The big thing that um, we saw was the new plan um, to counter Chinese investment in developing countries. Um, that's definitely gonna be pretty large, especially as I know we've talked about on here before how sort of 
you know, the West has not entirely abdicated any responsibility in, you know, forming development in, um, in, in developing countries, but more uh, just sort of letting private industry and, and um, you know, partnerships uh, take the lead while, while actual government support sort of sits in the back. Um, so we're, we're probably going to see a good amount of pure capital investment actually building capital projects in these countries, um, which is definitely going to be interesting to see as China more moves from an economic role into a, um, I guess, a, a closer partnership with these countries, including at some point, you know, deploying military assets. We're probably going to see that. That's that is that is the end game for for everything, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, and um, I mean, we, we we've talked before about the rate at which China's military expansion is occurring. Um, you know, it's it's pumping out new warships at a rate that is well not quite unparalleled i think the americans could probably argue to have had a higher rate of production during the second world war but yeah, certainly yeah, in, then. <laughs> in, not now yeah cer certainly in the modern in the modern world it is just astonishing the rate at which they are able to build um equipment and and, and get it deployed um and yeah we're seeing a lot of alliances between China and different countries, both in Africa and in South America as well. Um, yeah, and their up. recent, their their recent, um, at least exploratory plan to uh, develop the runway in Kiribati, which is definitely interesting because that was a a former U.S. base um, uh, in the area that was used fairly heavily during the Second World War. But additionally, it is fairly close to Hawaii and pretty much sits at the crossroads of a few major trading links between Asia and um, and the uh, entirety of North and South America. Um, so it might not be entirely military attention at this moment, but capital investment coming from the Chinese government, I, I mean, sort of, sort of drawing the difference between, you know, capital investment and whatever the Chinese government is doing is fairly hard. Um, but it, it definitely serves as a sign of one, this is the furthest East they've gone so far, um, investment wise, not counting investments in South America. Um, but in that Pacific region, that is, that's pretty far East. Um, and, and again, you, it's, it's pretty hard to sink an Island, um, which yeah. means it can serve as a very important asset. In addition, um, the nation of Kiribati has, um, uh, two years ago, broke relations with Taiwan and established relations with um, with uh, China um, or the the the, the um, communist uh, China, China, the yeah. People's Republic of China, not the Republic of China. Um, so, at at this point, they're definitely a friendly nation, um, which means they they sort of their purpose has changed. So that's that's one of the things, of course, that the G7 is going to be working to counter. I, I actually think possibly the, the Kiribati thing um, scared a number of nations um, into taking some further action. Um, that That's definitely something that, that I probably could see um, happening. Um, and then I think the final thing we should probably touch on with the G7 would be um, the climate issue. 
that has taken at least for these you know the the first day or two has taken up a lot of attention with these leaders um i know uh prince charles led a discussion um last night we're we're recording this on saturday um uh about the environmental future um so he's definitely leading that interest it's actually going to be interesting to see how the royal family sort of um takes a role because they've they've always had you know the sort of at least over the past 60 or 70 years more less of the the statesmanship role and more of of course you know the the leader of humanitarian and and, um and and interest roles um whereas before they had of course the state role i i guess you guys could talk about that in a bit more detail than i could yeah i mean um i I was sort of scrolling through a lot of the tweets from the different world leaders at G7 uh, earlier today and it like like you say it is a major topic of uh, interest for them at the moment and for the start of the conference at the very least um Canada being very vocal about it um which doesn't really come as any surprise um the EU less so I would imagine um from what I saw of tweets from the EU they were more focused on you know the the diplomacy and 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 everything that the g7 affords and they they made a note in particular about uh, education um, and foreign aid um, which has obviously been a topic of uh, contention here in the uk in the last couple of months with uh, plans for the aid budget to be slashed um on on that topic uh the the UK did actually pledge today um, a further £430 million uh, towards the Global Partnership for Education, um, which, you know, is always good to see. But yeah, um, obviously, you know, we, we were, st- we're one day into the, into the G7 summit. It has been, as you say, mostly focused on environmental stuff for the moment. Um, there was a tweet by the UK Foreign Secretary, which did uh, pique my interest earlier, um, meeting obviously with uh, Secretary of State Blinken. Um, and there, it was interesting the way that he worded the tweet, and we'll, we'll put the link for this in the uh, in the description uh, on YouTube. But, um, they were very specific reference to a coordinated approach on dealing with Russia. Um, now, obviously, the the G7 would be the G8 if Russia were invited. Um, Russia's been kept out of, of the group now for some time due to, uh, obviously, some of the issues that have happened in recent Ukraine. years. Ukraine. It, it, it was Ukraine. That, that was yeah. the main cleave event that sort of got them kicked out. Yeah. I mean, you've had Ukraine. You've had the Salisbury, Novichok poisonings. You've had so many different things going on, cyber attacks and everything else. Um so, you know, they're, they're still not really part of the group anymore. And whether that changes or not, I don't know um, what exactly a coordinated approach to Russia looks like. Um, I'm sure we'll see fleshed out a little bit more in detail in the coming days. But Yeah, and a, and a big element of meetings like this, of course, is meeting. It isn't exactly meetings between the main leaders, is the, you know, meetings between their, their undersecretaries and, you know, and, and the, the people who actually make and enact policy. Um, and that's that's one of the main things with the G7 is is seeing those meetings between, of course, um, people like uh, Rob and Blinken. Um, 
of course, because they're they're both physically there. They're both physically doing things. Yeah. Um, and that's certainly a big thing. And of course, meeting with their other G seven plus, you know, whoever else showed up. I mean, you know, you know, there are a lot of countries right now in Cornwall, um, and a lot of leadership there as well. Um, I, I mean, it's it's not the G twenty right now, but you know, it's it, it's it's pretty much the you know, um, not exactly the NATO, but but certainly the um, a more u.s sphere of u.s and european sphere of influence countries um meeting so so that's some something certainly interesting to see as well and then um i guess things i expect to come out of this meeting i think they've outlined most of the big things of course uh russia i mean the 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 tweet from rob pretty much um outlines it fairly clearly russia climate change global human rights um myanmar of course that's something that people are protesting them to talk about um one thing I have found sort of funny is that there are people, you know, protesting for action to be taken against Myanmar. But um, my question is, short short of an actual intervention, there there isn't really much the West can do as a whole there. Um, and and I think the people advocating for something to be done also probably wouldn't want a invasion. Um, you know, I just I I people people initially when the coup happened were joking about you know ten years in the future after the the NATO intervention in Myanmar, you know you know what what the the absolute bushfire war would still look like, um and and I think it it, it raises sort of a a big point of um interventions are certainly a lot less in the vogue after you know the the post Soviet collapse in the nineties and um. Uh, that sort of through that period um in the 90s and early 2000s um getting yeah. militarily involved in in issues was was certainly popular um and sort of the aftermath of that has um yeah waned there's, there's there's definitely a lot of um sort of a lack of political will now um i think that's obviously partly because of some of the interventions that have occurred more recently um, and the you know the outcomes of those and you've also obviously got the fact that people back home now with the advent of of media in sort of the late 90s really sort of covering everything that's going on in a conflict and those images being sort of transmitted back home unfiltered it has affected the way that governments look to deal with these kinds of issues yeah i think it was more the change from early success um in you know the, the first gulf war and the intervention in the balkans into this period of sort of um disaster after disaster um in afghanistan and iraq and i i think that's actually probably a pretty good time to um transfer over and and shift gears into the developing disaster in afghanistan yeah um, yeah yeah, it is. Uh, it's not good. Ever since the U.S. announced that it would be pulling out all troops by the 11th of September of this year, so that 2021, um, the troop pullout has been happening very quickly. Already half of the U.S. troops and assets are out of the country. Um, there weren't that many there in the first place, but the U.S. still had a lot of equipments, equipment and physical supplies left um, and physical assets. Um so, and, and just, I, I mean, we don't, the number of troops was somewhere between, I don't know, 2,000 and 5,000. Um, the, the U.S. uses a lot of um, 
bureaucratic methods to hide the true number of troops in country, but it was it was somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and so about 50% are out now. And something I've also seen is U.S. air support for Afghan troops has effectively disintegrated. Yeah. Um, which is slightly terrifying because the Taliban have also started over the past couple of months ever since the U.S. confirmed and then actually started withdrawing troops. Um, the Taliban started a fairly furious summer offensive. Um, and one of the main things that we've seen is a couple of Taliban groups, and I'll, I'll throw up a map on the screen here from, from Live UA Map, which these guys are great and really good at, at turning the tweets that a lot of uh, people send out and, and turning a lot of information that gets out there into something that's easily digestible. And I know in Afghanistan, um, just due to the nature of how the country is built, it's a lot harder to follow along with most of the action. Unlike, you know, somewhere like Iraq where, where most of this stuff happens in a few places. Um, yeah. I mean, and so sort of, we, we've had one incident, um, particularly recently on, on, on that matter that, um, sort of, leapt out at me and i think i think the information came from these live ua maps as you're saying um on the 8th of june the um so that was what a few days ago um the, four days ago now the, the the afghan government admitted that 157 members of the national security forces had been killed in the previous 24 hours due to fighting with groups like the taliban al-qaeda and islamic state so really interesting with that a lot of us um apart from the absolute horror of that death count um what was fairly interesting is that's a that's a fairly abnormal number um to see so obviously the fighting is coming very heavily it it doesn't seem from the amount of fighting we've seen that it's entirely correct and some of us watching it are sort of confused if or why the Afghan government would be putting out I, almost artificially inflated numbers of death counts. Um, it, it all comes down to the fact that um, most of the fighting we've seen has actually been um, Afghan army troops retreating and Afghan police troops retreating and giving up territory. Yeah. Um, when, when the Taliban is able to mass enough fighters to actually present a problem to them... Um, uh, one thing I can just think of right now is uh, Merker, which is um, outside of uh, Ghazni, um, between Can it's it's on the road between Kandahar and Kabul. That that main artery, um, it's 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 a it's a town sitting on the road, and the Taliban effectively captured it without much fighting. Um, the Afghan government forces retreated. Retreated. I think that's partially because of. One, the Taliban, instead of executing government forces, um, they they did this a bit a while ago, but it's now being heavily seen a lot more now. Um, they just let them go uh, if they if they surrender. Um, they they basically just give them money, give them you know a written up explanation, sort of serving as a pass if they run into any more Taliban forces, mm. and then they just like send them home. Um, so it's become fairly attractive for Afghan army forces to surrender to Taliban forces. Um, one, because there's just this lack of U S air support right now that did change in the last like 24 or 48 hours. Um, I think the U S finally realized sort of what was happening and um, resumed some airstrikes, but 
without that U.S. air support, I, I don't think these guys really want to fight that much. Um, and and the 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 option of surrendering is is fairly attractive, at least as of right now. Um, and that sort of brings us into the future. I had the chance to talk with a few people about the potential future of Afghanistan. Um, Cause at this point, I think all of us can probably agree that the Afghan central government, at least outside of Kabul, the days are limited. Yeah. Um, um, there, there was a, a analysis piece done recently by one of the major think tanks um, in the open sources intelligence community. And they estimate that at the moment, the way things are heading by the time U.S. forces fully withdraw later this year, the Afghan government will probably only control somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of Afghan territory. Um, the rest of it being either actively fought over or under control of groups like the Taliban and Al Qaeda. And that that is that is really terrifying, to be perfectly honest. Um, especially when you bear in mind, you know. Operation Enduring Freedom was, you know, started 20 years ago. And for us to have gone from where things were then to this point now, where realistically the situation is no better, um, you know, some, something needs to be done. And the Americans are indicating that they're not willing to carry on doing something. I mean, let, let's be honest here. In 2020, 10 American service members died in Afghanistan. Hmm. Four were combat deaths. Um, so you, you, you have to see, you know, this, this whole situation. And, you know, one, the U.S. maintenance forces were small. And the U.S. had developed this strategy where we could really assist the current Afghan government in keeping the Taliban under control through, you know, limited airstrikes and, you know, limited troop pre pre presence in country. As, as I said, I think in an earlier podcast, this is honestly, the withdrawal was not a, um, was not a military or even geopolitically influenced move. Um, it was, it was a move designed to give a win to the current government, um, in the U S um, by saying, you know, we ended the war in Afghanistan. Well, that that's like saying we ended the war in Vietnam, hmm. you know, except Afghanistan, you know, counterintuitively was was a much easier war to actually win um, than the war in Vietnam at, at that point. Um, just because, I mean, we had a very, as, as I said, a very small maintenance force taking extremely minimal casualties on a year-over-year -year basis. Hmm. Um which just leads you to sort of think at at what point do we say we lost? Do we say we lost, you know, and and I say we at this point because pretty much every NATO country at some point was involved in Afghanistan and lost troops in Afghanistan and 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 not just that but but a number of outside of NATO countries participated in the coalition and lost troops yeah. and and you know spent a lot of money on this. At what point do we say, you know, we've returned to the status quo of the 1990s? Um, except this time there's not just the, the Taliban, there's, you know, Al Qaeda groups who have turned into Islamic state groups who now, um, actually control territory as we saw when they, um, attacked and killed a, a number of members of a mine clearing operation, um, 
in Afghanistan. They're they're still present. They still hold territory now. Mm. Um, and at, at what point do we say we lost? Do we say we lost now, or or do we say we lost in you know three uh, three months from now um, when the U.S. is gone on on September twelfth and and the Taliban has effectively you know controlled most of the country or do we say we lost when you know the taliban rolls into Kabul? it it's sort of this question of of you know at what point do we say well yeah that's it yeah and i mean obviously at the moment the 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 mission there is known as operation freedoms sentinel um and and as you mentioned there are a number of other coalition nations still involved i I think i did a, a quick check today and there's something like 35 nations have personnel currently still deployed in afghanistan um i suspect that when the u.s withdraws you know given that the u.s the, the combination of u.s and uk troops makes up a third of the uh, of the military personnel deployed there at the moment i suspect we will see a lot of those 33 other countries withdraw their people as well well the withdrawals have already happened from the uk is they've been forward basing c-17s in the uae to fly them fly their equipment out and the germans have Germans last week dispatched an A400M to do their withdrawal, and the Italians have been flying um, KC-767s. Yeah, that the their tankers in yeah. a tank to trans to transport their personnel and supplies out. And the US, yeah, UK, would... Germany, and Italy are the four biggest nations out there in terms of military presence. Um, and and I'm fairly sure the smaller countries as well, um, who don't have exactly the most robust. Um, transport networks in the region are contracting um to to have troops and supplies uh not evacuated per se but withdrawn i think they'll probably also be hopping on and contracting or just getting um assistance from the uk and the us with much larger transport fleets yeah it's it's definitely something of course at this point we're seeing it's a fairly complete withdrawal of um of of coalition troops and you know what what do we see after that you know what does afghanistan become as a country um you know afghanistan's air force has been fairly beefed up um in in the past 20 years they you know does the taliban now control you know 60 coin aircraft and you know um it's really it's this it's this question of you know what does the country look like um because it was it was fairly weird after um after the 1990 or during the 1990s um especially with the country wasn't really under one single party control um there were a bunch of different parties that you know controlled various portions it was fairly close to a warlord society at that point with the taliban running around in you know pockets Hmm. um but we've we've obviously, and one of the main things that I can say now for sure is the Northern Alliance, um, former Northern Alliance um, uh, members who fought the Taliban during the 1990s and then um, fought with uh, coalition forces, but especially the U.S. Um, in 2001 and 2002 um, to defeat the Taliban. They are um, starting to reform their forces and recruit new uh, militants and... Um, sort of start to coalesce this area in northern Afghanistan where they can resist um, sort of Taliban attacks. And, you know, it, it, it risks dissolving into, devolving into a civil war. Um, I think definitely 
we're going to see support again for the Northern Alliance, but this it sort of just returns us to this 1990s status quo where Afghanistan becomes this base again. And I think some of us talked before about, you know, who actually enters Afghanistan next? Um, what what major power decides to try to intervene there? Um, I I know I talked with some um, people who are experts on China um, who actually study China and it's sort of a toss up um, whether or not China decides to do something in Afghanistan. Um, uh, The Pakistani support, Pakistan is a Chinese ally. The Pakistanis support the Taliban. Um, So it might actually be in China's best interest to have um, the Taliban stay in power in Afghanistan. Um, Additionally, on top of that, um, what we're seeing with the Uyghur population in um, in Western China is that China has this new, fairly um, aggressive policy against any sort of um, Muslim descent or Muslims, period. Um, And so they they may come up with some sort of excuse that is, you know, Afghanistan is serving as a hotbed of terrorism that's on our border and, you know. And, and it's a, a vested interest in ours to, you know, prevent terror. And, and you know, U.S. and the West gave up on, on trying to stop that. And so we're going to step in. But again, they don't want to get into a bushfire war. And they, the, going back to what we were talking about with the Chinese military, they sort of have this two-tier operation where one tier is, you know, their, their bottom tier is kinetic military, you know, which is they're building amphibious forces and... Um, and they're building up their air force, but that's primarily focused on their eastern coast, um, and, and and the first island chain, um, and and countering you know U.S. influence there. Um, but they they don't really have, as we we've seen in their clashes with India, the most competent ground forces. Um, so it's sort of moving forward it's it's sort of this this very complex geopolitical situation but can definitely be framed when you basically classify it as pakistan helps the taliban china is friendly with pakistan the us is also friendly with pakistan but the us is against the taliban um and so it 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 very quickly you start from this simple starting point to this very very complex series of um of of relationships in the region yeah, and it's worth remembering as well that China's focus for the moment, at the very least, is on Taiwan and, you know, the first island chain and Asia Pacific. Um, and that's part of the reason that obviously the UK carrier strike group is, is heading out that way. And the Americans have been conducting uh, numerous passings through the Taiwan Strait and so on in recent months. Um yeah, I mean, I, like you say, I, I can see China potentially choosing to get involved in Afghanistan because ultimately there will be a vacuum when the US and, and the rest of the NATO forces leave. Um, whether that vacuum is filled by China or by someone else or whether it potentially allows uh, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and, and, and ISIS to sort of grow back effectively. Um because, to, to, you know, it's fair to say, as, as you said, we've not won that fight, really, because they still exist. Um, and, you know, it, it's going to be very much a case of whether or not they're able to grow back stronger or, or, or at the very least grow back to a, a shadow of their former selves and what that 
will have, uh, you know, what, what impact that will have on the rest of the world in the coming months and years. Well, and the other thing that um, that was discussed was whether or not the Taliban have an interest in trying to put forward this forward-facing image of, you know, we've changed since the 1990s, um, where the U.S. invaded us, the people of Afghanistan didn't want, you know, foreign, you know, invaders taking over. They they obviously seem to want us to be in charge. Um, you know, they're they're going to possibly move from executing people in uh, on football pitches to, you know, just throwing them in prison. Um it's this question of whether or not the Taliban tries to create this vaguely marketable image um, where, you know, maybe they don't openly support Al-Qaeda and, and you know, they, they put together this piecemeal, you know, force to attempt to, you know, for, for optic purposes to fight, you know, uh, ISIS, um, ISIS-K in the east of the country, um, you know, where, where they try to put forward this image of, yeah, we can govern, Af- govern Afghanistan. Um, and that definitely is a question. I mean, we have seen with these, you know, with these surrendering troops that ISIS has some, or not ISIS, sorry, the Taliban have somewhat changed their modus operandi, um, where where they've gone from just killing surrendering troops to uh, letting them go home and, and giving them, you know, money for transport and, you know, permission to travel. Um I think we've seen it change somewhat. It's just a question of whether or not it changes once they get into power. You guys want to move on to uh carrier strike group? Yeah, I'll talk about that. Awesome. And on and on that up. depressing note of the Taliban becoming a mainstream <laughs> government in the world. So updates on carrier strike group. So we've got HMS Queen Elizabeth, uh, Fort Victoria, and can't remember. I think it's Tide Surge is the Tide class tanker with it. I can't remember. They are in Italy. Um, HMS Queen Elizabeth is in Augusta in Sicily, parked next to the Italian car- carrier Cavour. Um, lot of F 35s. Lot, lot of F 35s there. With F 35s on, and Cavour's got uh, the Harriers on board, so it's nice to see the old and the new. Um, yeah, and and the Cavour did spend some time um, in Norfolk, Virginia, getting raided on the F-35B. Um, so once Italy yeah. finishes acquiring those, the Cavour will be operating that. Yep. Um, sort of sort of sad seeing seeing another country um, lose the Harriers, but um, you know it's the the F-35B is is the successor to the Harrier. Um, it is it is it is Whether we a like better it Harrier. Not. We've got the we've got HMS Defender in HNLMS Everston from the Netherlands. They are in Turkey and about to go into the Black Sea for a bit. They'll be there for a bit. We've got um oh what type twenty three frigates are with it? I think it's we've got well we've got one type twenty three that is in Albania. We've got the other type twenty three that is in Spain was in Alicante and attached itself to. NATO stand, standing NATO maritime group one for yeah. a bit of time to work Hang with the Spanish. I think I've got the um, here we go. I've got the list here. Um, so HMS Kent has assigned itself to standing NATO yes. maritime group two, and yeah. HMS Richmond uh, spent a couple of days in Montenegro and is now, as you say, off elsewhere. It's, it's off elsewhere. So it, the whole group's broken up, and the submarine was in Gibraltar recently. Mm-hmm. So we've got the whole group broken up, and 
probably won't see the group merge together as such until at least two weeks until they finish the Black Sea Patrol, and then you'll probably see them merge together before transit in the Suez Canal. Yeah. And the the will once they get into the Indian Ocean, they'll be breaking off again. Yeah, and we, we're going to get a uh, probably quite a nice photo shoot when they do pass through Suez. Um, yep. Obviously, that will be a fairly major deal, um, given that the last time a, a British carrier passed through Suez was well over a decade ago now. Um, <laughs> do a meme, get it stuck. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they Not won't be pulling a, a an evergreen maneuver. Um, yeah, they'll be they'll be they'll be doing a well. They'll be a brief a brief time sat in the Eastern Ed while the carrier launches strikes on yeah. ISIS. I heard it actually wouldn't be that brief of a time. Um, were there some more solid um, scheduling numbers given, or or no? I, I think it's being kept very secretive at the moment. There was, um, there's no there's no scheduling because there's no dates for as such for when the group will reach certain areas of the world because obviously they're breaking off to do their various diplomatic visits and yeah. relationship building. I think the only the only firm date we've got for anything is the visit to Japan, which is towards the end of the deployment um, before the ships turn around and come home. Still, don't have any idea for the route that it'll take on its way back home. Like, I don't think anyone. Yeah, there's there's still that... debate as to whether it's going to come back the way that it heads out by obviously going back through the Indian Ocean, back up through Suez and the Mediterranean, or whether it's going to head out across the Pacific. Um, visit potentially the the U.S. West Coast and then and then make its way back home uh, round the round the bottom uh, of South America from there. Um, I think probably more likely to be back the way it's been going out. Yeah. Um, not least of all because of the distance for the Pacific leg of the journey, uh, and also I would imagine the Argentinians would not be too pleased if uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth suddenly came round the bottom of uh, <laughs> South America and parked up outside the Falklands. I mean that that would be that would be the logical end to this situation. <laughs> Yeah. Just just park it park park one of them permanently off, you know off off the coast. So that's pretty much what we've what's been happening in the carrier strike group. Nothing really intra not, well obviously did its exercise for the French, but it's it's just sitting in the Mediterranean doing diplomatic stuff and relationship yeah. building. Well that that was I, I think that's honestly the number one most important thing that um that uh, carry strike group 21 has done which is yeah. sort of uh, establish this you know uh, the fact that now of course once the the spanish finish getting their um carrier situation figured out um and and hopefully begin to operate the f-35 in a, in a serious fashion um that that definitely gives a number of nato nations now and and once the italians very very soon get their f-35b operating off the good four um that 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 gives multiple nations located in Europe in NATO this fifth generation carrier capability, um, which it, not so much a deterrent to the recent Russian aggression, but certainly changes the situation somewhat. Um, I think, it, I think it glo globally, though, it says, look, if you're going to start something with NATO, be advised that several NATO nations now have ex very good expeditionary warfare capabilities and can sail up to your coast. 
Yeah, yeah, and and even if if the U.S. is honestly, I think most of this was driven by the fact that there was this U.S. threat of withdrawal from NATO, um, and that certainly um, that threat has definitely degraded in the past year. Yeah. Um, but but it's definitely and and it's nice for the U.S. where the U.S. has doesn't you know can say instead of deploying a, a U.S. carrier strike group, you know the Italians can send a carrier strike group. Um, which sort of removes some pressure um, off the U.S. to to operate in some of these regions. Yeah, and I, I think for what it's worth, um, President Trump's threats uh, around NATO have kind of sort of got the other NATO nations to kind of status, you know, sit up a little bit and and pay a bit more attention and actually start acting a bit more. Um, I think we've definitely seen. I, I don't know how much it has to do with the COVID nineteen pandemic, but we've we've definitely seen an uptick in the last few months in the number of uh, you know foreign warships deploying to various locations where you would normally see the U.S. presence. Um, I know, uh, for example, you've got several uh, European nations have sent ships out into the Indian Ocean and beyond. Um, you've had port visits to the U.S. as 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 you mentioned earlier for. for uh, Italian Navy vessels, among other things, um, which is all good to see, of course. Um, but yeah, I think that's de it's definitely, you know, the the whole NATO situation and the US relationship with NATO has definitely had an impact there um, and a positive one. Yeah, I think it started out as this negative threat um, that NATO nations handled well hmm. and were able to um, take and improve. Um, and, and certainly develop a lot of self or attempt to develop self-sufficiency. And that's that's a big thing to have. I think kind of what the problem happened is at the time of Trump's election, a lot of NATO nations were just sort of beginning a modernization program. So it didn't it didn't look great. Well, it, it looked like they weren't committing to stuff. But in, in reality, they were just they were starting a modernization plan. As in modernization of armies and upgrades take an incredibly long time, hence why. It's taken a long time for Britain to get there. To the Italians are, go are going through a big naval program. Mm. Yeah, and I think that was obviously a. Um, it, it was certainly a factor that accelerated um, these programs that had already been established. But obviously, we'll follow the carrier strike group as it moves around, as it le as it leaves for the Eastern Mediterranean in a few days. Yes, and that's something I think all of us will be watching very closely um, because these will be the first offensive strikes um, that this or or that the Queen Elizabeth, I, I believe, in in an actual wartime situation um, partakes in. If I'm not incorrect, you are correct. The F-85s have technically gone into combat previously by doing reconnaissance missions over Syria when they went to Akrotiri a few years a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and it, 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 like you say, this this will be the first sort of combat test for the carrier, and it will be probably the biggest test for what it actually behaves like in real world situations. Because as much as the, the ship and crew have gone through rigorous testing through various exercises, um, you can't ever really simulate what actual operations for something like op shader look like for a carrier until you actually go and perform those missions uh in actuality yeah and I, that's definitely one of the big things and not saying that the uh isis is a minor threat anymore but they, they it's 
they're definitely an easy enemy to practice on. Mm. Um, the the only caveat in that situation is, of course, um, the distance and the required tanker support required for strikes like that. And the Russians watching. Um, they're going to that is that is going to be a big caveat is how much do the Russians watch the situation? Um, especially being based out of Latakia, having that um, S four hundred system and the the radar systems associated with that watching um any aircraft activity that's going to be definitely a big thing to uh watch for yeah and and they will i I imagine they will be keeping a very very close eye on things because obviously at the moment um they don't really have a carrier as such um because netsov obviously had a a major fire uh, several months ago and has been sort of port bound ever since um Russia still doesn't seem to know whether it's going to be building a new carrier or whether it's going to be refitting the Kuznetsov again to try and get that operational. Um, they, I mean, they want to build a new carrier very badly. Yeah, the They do not have the money to. Yeah, and they, they, I think we've mentioned before, they seem to come out with a new design every couple of months. Um, some of the designs are quite interesting. Some of them are just outright ridiculous. Um it's it's almost a you know it's almost a laugh sometimes seeing some of the ideas that they are proposing when they know uh, you know as well as the west does that they really can't afford at the moment um any sort of major warship building program um i mean well, it it's not only that they don't have the facilities to do it at the moment yeah well they they do not have the facilities to handle a large building project like that. Look when they look when they tried when they were going for amphibious ships, they ended up asking the French to build them, and the French sold them to Egypt. Yeah, that was really funny. And now the Egyptians have a fairly robust helicopter carrier, effectively, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think that's what they basically ended up turning it into. Um, but at, at this point, sort of, I think one of the one of the main questions is, you know, well. You know how effective do those strikes end up being what issues do they find um because of course you you don't really know what things are going to look like until you're actually in combat um and so i guess they will be finding that out shortly yeah um and obviously at the moment the the, the british f-35s are mainly going to be using paveway guided bombs um we're obviously hearing good news about uh, projects for the uh, replacement for brimstone and various other weapons that are coming in, uh, hopefully in the next couple of months to a couple of years. Um, but yeah, like you say, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I'm sure there will be a great deal of MOD press coverage uh, about strikes by the carrier strike group. Um, and it will be interesting to see some of the photos and, and maybe even some of the videos that come from that. Yeah, and and of course, as always, if anyone from the MOD is listening, have camera will travel. <laughs> um, but I I think uh, that's that's probably it for for what we expect shortly from CSG twenty one. Um, there's Peru, but that that we all know. Uh, so in Peru, leftist um, authoritarian gets elected. We'll see how the CIA handles that. I do not expect him to live more than a year. Just, just gonna put that out there. CIA, allow us to introduce ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, no one, no one is interested. What, but what? Honestly, I'm, I'm gonna be honest and, and sort of drop the jokes on that for a second. But um, 
one of the main things that we saw um, from the uh, from the coronavirus pandemic in South America was it drove a lot of, or frankly everywhere, but mainly in South America just because the effects were so bad, um, was that it drove a lot of extremism to both sides. And that is something about South America. There is this very strong, rural, socially conservative, um, fiscally very leftist um, base. Um, and we saw them definitely come out hard in this last election um, where the other candidate was, you know, this this far right former uh, daughter of a, a, a former far right president there. Um, and and it's just this this sort of the effects that we've seen. I think the U.S. election would have been a lot different if the pandemic hit eight months earlier. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the pretty much it, by the time the pandemic really started hitting, the primaries were practically over. Um, but it, if it had happened, honestly, even two months earlier, um, we would have seen some very, very different outcomes probably from the U S election as well. Um, and I guess, I guess we'll, we'll possibly see it over the next few years, but in general, and, and I'm putting a big in general in front of this statement, the world economy has begun to recover um, at a fairly rapid pace. Yeah. Um, apart from supply shortages that we're seeing, but we're seeing those get worked out slowly at this point. Um, but that that's 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 generally the the political situation in the world is is we might have some um, more extreme leaders come out of this um, for the better or for the worst. Um, but I do think that the U.S. will pay very close attention to this. But again, this is not, you know, an 80s U.S. government that, you know, I will refrain from saying the name of the president um, that that was very interested in getting rid of le leftist leaders in South America. But um, this this definitely is a different government. They have a slightly different view of those things. Um, but yeah, I think... Um, John, you wanted to go over uh, the news stories. Yeah. Um, so obviously, it's been a couple of weeks now since we did the uh, last episode. So there's been there's been a few developments in the world worth just briefly chatting about. I think. Um, and the first one I want to bring up is um, Iran, um, and it's it, it's <sighs> Iran's had quite a bit going on the last couple of weeks. I think it's fair to say um, they've obviously got. Uh, a ship that sunk uh, very, very recently in the Gulf. Um, they have another ship currently on its way to Venezuela with some military equipment for the Venezuelan government on board, um, which I know the Americans are looking very, very closely at at the moment. Well, um, fast attack boats armed with anti-ship cruise missiles, which yeah. are certainly concerning. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a, an, an interesting development and not one that I... I personally would have ever seen coming um but there you go that's that's the way iran is in in the current times um and then we've also had this this whole thing with the uh obviously iran's nuclear weapons program uh, and the sort of the ongoing diplomatic efforts the u.s are trying to uh bring about a deal there um we've had this report uh on the 31st of may um the UN's International Atomic Energy Agency uh, informing us that um, Iran is now very, very close to having a viable nuclear weapon um, and that we could be looking at Iran being a nuclear-capable power 
within sort of the next six or seven weeks. And and obviously the Israelis are going to have something to say about that, um, mm. most likely. And also, again, a lot of the predictions, I think we've pre been predicting that Iran is going to have a nuclear weapon in one to two years for the past probably ten years, I think <laughs> now. Um, yeah. So <laughs> And then the Israelis hit the reset button and, and we, we reset the clock slightly. I definitely think some of this pressure is overhyped. Um yeah. just just with, you know, some of the some of the geopolitical situations. Hmm. But it is fair to say that Iran has very much stopped um allowing the IAEA uh, access to various nuclear facilities. Um, and we've seen a lot of satellite imagery. There's there's a couple of really really good accounts, um, Orion Intel, um, and a few other uh, sort of the Intel Lab and a few other accounts on Twitter that you can follow, who have been looking at the satellite imagery recently for several of these Iranian nuclear facilities. And there there's definitely some major expansions going on, some major work being done at those locations, um, which, you know. The EU has issued some statements. The Americans have issued some statements. Um, I think the Americans are still very much trying to push for a return to the uh, JCPOA deal that uh, was brought in in the Ob Obama administration. Um, I think, in all fairness, it's probably beyond that point now. I, d I don't think there's really a way back to that at this point. Um, not without I mean, I... serious differences, but... I spent an earlier episode talking a bit about why returning to the JCPOA was the only politically available option um, for, I guess, both governments at the time, because the only other option is, uh, well, war, and that won't be pretty. Mm. Um, it's, it's just, it's definitely something to think about whenever um, the JCPOA seems ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, in other news, Croatia is to become the fifth export customer for France's Dassault Rafale um, after it placed an order for 12 second-hand jets in a deal worth $1.2 billion. Uh, first of the jets will arrive in 2024, replacing the Soviet-era MiG-21 fishbeds uh, currently operated by the country. Um, that's definitely a, a huge win for France. Um, obviously, the like with the Typhoon, they have struggled a little bit with sort of export uh, uptake. Um, Egypt's been very, very good for, for the Rafale, so has uh, more recently India, um, and now Croatia, uh, to add to that list, um, is all good news. Partially because it's ridiculously expensive to buy, operate, hmm. do anything with. <laughs> Just just because it's it's a fairly limited run aircraft, um, but I I do find uh, that deal funny as the uh, Swedes and Saab are very 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 angry they didn't go with the Gripen. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it. it, it there's another story that will come up a little bit uh, shortly. It's interesting as well at the minute with the with the Gripen that obviously the the current version is the ENF, uh, known as the Gripen Next Generation. Um, obviously. Brazil has taken an interest there and, and, and there's orders there. But one of the more recent orders, which I'll come to in a minute, has been for the, the older C&D variant. And um, I don't know what that really says about the, the EF variant of the Gripen. Um, more expensive. <laughs> that, that's what it says. Well, yes. Um, and may, maybe suggests that the, the capability improvements are not worth the extra 
price? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, especially as the F-35 continues to come down in price, um, it becomes a very, very attractive option hmm. uh, for a lot of these countries um, that the U.S. will export to. That also is a, a big caveat. Yeah. Um, as previously mentioned as well, obviously we've got Iran uh, appears to be supplying Venezuela with these high-speed missile-armed attack boats. Um, satellite imagery showing the uh, cargo ship in question before it departed uh, had seven of these boats on deck. Um, I don't know if there would have been any others stored beneath deck that we can't see, or whether it's just the seven boats for the time being. Um, if you look at the waterline, it's obvious that the ship is very, very, very full. Yeah. Um, which obviously, uh, as we mentioned, is a cause for concern, particularly for the U.S., um, whether the U.S. chooses to try and intercept the vessel remains to be seen. Um, they have kind of stepped back in, in recent times when Iran has sent stuff to Venezuela. Uh, whether there'll be a different uh, response with this being actual sort of heavy-duty military equipment rather than just fuel, uh, like I say, we'll just have to wait and see. Iran is sending a um, frigate to presumably escort the formation, though. Um, there is what there is one frigate style thing with it. Yes, yeah. and it's it's definitely um, going to be interesting because this is their newest and arguably most capable current ship. Um, so that's that's definitely going to be interesting to see. Uh, the UK has announced that next year for the uh, Queen's Platinum Jubilee there will be a four day bank holiday. Um, for the rest of the world, there will be a number of uh, flypasts and a very special edition of the Trooping the Colour Parade, um, along with several other events uh, that will no doubt be celebrated across the Commonwealth um, and indeed the wider world. Um, a US F-35 deployed on HMS Queen Elizabeth had to make an emergency landing in Ibiza on the uh, 2nd of June. Um, I don't think we have actually found out definitively what it was that went wrong, have we? Nah, not definitively. It no one the, it had a base tire, but no one knows when that was caused. But that seems more than there seems to be more at it than just the tire burst. Yeah. Um, so that was a, an interesting little uh, detour for uh, one of the jets on board, but uh, it has been repaired, I believe, and it is back on board the ship now. Yeah, it? it came back on. Early, early, the early, the early in the week, I think. There are worse places to have to make an emergency landing. How yeah, convenient! Exactly. You lands just in time for the summer season starting. <laughs> uh, Indonesia has indicated that it will be spending one hundred and twenty-five billion dollars on a complete modernization of its military by the mid twenty forties. Um, details of the. Uh, the investment that it intends to make are somewhat sketchy at the moment. Um, however, it is looking at uh, purchasing Lockheed Martin's F-16V uh, Viper variant of the Fighting Falcon, which is the Block... Is it Block 70 they're calling it now? 70-72, yeah. Block 70 Depends on what radar, radar they go with. Um, of that uh, huge amount of money. The 79 billion of it will be for defense equipment, uh, 32.5 billion for sustainment, and the remaining 13.5 billion will be to pay off interest on foreign loans uh, for previous uh, defense deals. 
Um, on the topic of the F-16V, the Philippines announced that it lost uh, the competition for the new Philippines uh, fast jets. As I mentioned earlier, Saab's 39C Gripen uh, won that contract. Um, originally, the uh, request was for a total of 12 jets, uh, a value of 1.2 billion. Um, Saab have managed to offer 14 jets for that price, um, with delivery starting fairly soon. Uh, whereas the Lockheed Martin offering was expected to cost 1.6 billion for just 12 jets, and delivery wouldn't begin until 2025 or 2026. Um, that will obviously be a bit of a blow for uh, Lockheed Martin, um, but yeah, as, as we sort of said, it, it's interesting that the Philippines have opted for the, the C and D variant of the Gripen rather than the newer E and F variant. Um, I don't believe the price difference is that drastic, but uh, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on that. I believe the operating cost is different. I would have to double check on that, though. Right. Uh, Portugal has sent 146 military personnel uh, to Lithuania as part of uh, a NATO operation there. Um, Portugal has been uh, deploying a lot of uh, personnel um, recently on, on various NATO operations, which is, um, you know, it, it's good to see arguably one of the smaller uh, military forces in the alliance is, is really getting stuck in and, and, and involved at the moment, uh, despite, you know, all the restrictions caused by COVID. Which are which are finally starting to lift somewhat. Um, Europe, especially, will be allowing in Americans <laughs> in piecemeal groups starting uh, sometime soon. So that's nice to see. Yeah, I don't know if we mentioned it in last episode, but um, there was obviously an incident in Belarus uh, involving a Ryanair uh, flight that was uh, diverted in inverted commas. Um, on the 4th of June, uh, the EU announced that uh, as a result of that incident, all Belarus-based airlines flying in EU airspace uh, would be banned uh, from continuing to do so. Um, so far as I'm aware, that ban is still in effect. Um, is it... I do not believe they put an end date on it. No, um, which does make uh, for an interesting uh, situation for Belarus. Um, given its location on the continent and, and its neighbours, um, it kind of limits where Belarus-based flights can go. Um, and a lot of European airlines have been advised to avoid Belarusian airspace because of it. Um, Russia, notably, seems to have been fully in agreement with Belarus's actions, um, which, again, you know, kind of just shows once again why Russia is still being kept out of the G7. Um, all of the other G7 uh, member states have been very, very clear that that kind of behaviour is not acceptable. Um, Airbus has delivered the 100th A400M Atlas transport aircraft. Um, the airframe in particular is the 10th for the Spanish Air Force. Um, at the same time as, as, as this was happening, the uh, global A400M fleet 
uh, surpassed 100,000 flying hours um, with a total at the moment of 174 aircraft on order uh, for Spain, Germany, France, the UK, Malaysia, Luxembourg, Turkey and Belgium. Um, it's fair to say the A400 has been quite a success story uh, for Europe. Um, although whether or not it's ever going to be able to truly challenge the Hercules, uh, I mean, you know, you're being American, I'm sure you're 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 a big fan of the of the Hercules and Well been... <laughs> the Hercules feel fills a different role, I yeah. would say. The A four hundred is more in line to compete with the C seventeen. Yeah, it's, it's it's weird because it, it sort of sits between the two. And it, it does, it's, yeah. It's different. It's 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 a it's a prop aircraft, not jet, and it, it, or turboprop, and and not jet. So it it just it fills this sort of different role. Hmm. Um. Whereas I I think you know, the I mean all these countries still operate C one thirties. Um. Yeah, I'm yeah. fairly sure of. So it, it I mean it's not replacing the C one thirty just because of the C. Well, for, for the time being, at least, yeah. field. I don't think for I don't think for a while. Um, just because of the C seven or the C one thirties um austere field conditions, which just absolutely, no offense, paint the floor, um, with the A four hundred, um, in certain situations, um. But uh, again, the A four hundred is definitely a bit less ex or significantly less expensive to operate than the C seventeen, mm. um. So yeah, it definitely has that role and and it fills it. Yeah. Uh, Hyundai um, has unveiled its proposal for a future South Korean aircraft carrier. Um, we'll post a photo of this uh, on the video um, if we can. It's, it's big. It's a phenomenal design. I mean, uh, we all kind of knew that South Korea was looking at an aircraft carrier, but we... We were kind of expecting, I would imagine, something more along the lines of what they already have um, with no, their. No, they're 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 swinging for the fences with this one. Yeah, this. Um, I've got to be honest. It looks like it could even be larger than both HMS Queen Elizabeth and even the French uh, proposal for a future aircraft carrier at the minute. Um, it it it's uh, yeah. I mean the the initial uh, the the model that has been unveiled at a defense exhibition is just astonishing really isn't it um and notably the f-35b is uh at the forefront of that let me let me i just have to look at it again for the proposal um it, is it stovall or stobar i keep it's stovall to... yeah um so okay it's stovall not stovall. it has it has a, a a ski jump uh on the front just like with the queen elizabeth um which is, you know, I suppose, I suppose to, be, to a certain extent, it's not really a surprise. That's, you know, it's proving to be a popular design uh, concept at the minute. Um, obviously, Britain's got, um, Italy's got a similar design. Uh, Spain's got a similar design. Australia has ships that have a ski ramp, even though they don't operate uh, the F-35B to even launch from those ships. Um but yeah, it it it's an it's an impressive design, and if they do go ahead and build it, um, it will definitely cause a major shift in the balance of power in in that sort of area of uh, Asia Pacific. Um, yeah, well, the the main thing is if they decide to build a carrier that large, 
Um, yeah. It's definitely going to take them some time to actually do it, and then, of course, uh, actually achieve operational capability with it. Whereas if they went with a smaller design, they would most likely be able to um, achieve operational capability much sooner. Hmm. And that yeah. that's probably a caveat that the government has to look at, is will the situation be the same in probably 2035 um, versus today? Yeah. And realistically, this is, yeah, this this isn't a ship that we're going to see entering service imminently. Um, I mean, the, the even, Queen even Elizabeth began development. Abilities. I mean, the Queen Elizabeth was first revealed when? Um, 2000. Yeah, we don't talk about that. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> that was I a mean, bit of a project. Yeah, I, I think it would not be unreasonable to see a build time similar to the Gerald R. Ford class for something like this for South Korea. Um, yeah, well, it, probably a bit longer, to be honest. Yeah, it, we've it would be a issue. huge undertaking if they go ahead with it. Um, who knows? We might... It would be funny if, if Russia turns around now and asks for the design for their own carrier. Um <laughs> Start start fielding outside design houses. To... Yeah, I, I can't imagine South Korea would be uh, too willing, but um, you never know. Strange new, things have happened. The new Porsche design house, uh, Kuznetsov carrier. Yeah, I'm just gonna start fielding outside uh, stuff. Uh, the U.S. Navy has announced that the DDGX project uh, planning has begun. Um, as many of you will be aware, the Arleigh Burke class destroyer was originally meant to have been replaced with the Zumwalt class. Um, the Zumwalt class obviously got cut back to just three ships from an original plan of 32. Um, and now the US Navy has announced that the replacement for the old Burke class, uh, the DDG-X, um, that program is now underway. And they are hoping to bring the first ship of the class into service in 2032. Uh, I don't know if you've heard anything more about that on your end of the... Um, so, one of the things about the Burke classes that, or one of the godsends, at least, with the cancellation of the Zumwalt program, which in and of itself is a complete story, and I could spend an hour talking about it, um, is that the Burke has been very, very, very upgradable, and has been a very... Um, it's been a platform that takes upgrades very well. It's been a platform that can operate with them with with them well. And I think even the new DDGX program is probably going to end up looking very similar to the Burke. Yeah. Um probably a bit more stealth, but at at the end of the day, one of the things that they found with the Zumwalt program is that going very heavily towards stealth, your ability to upgrade you know the yeah. the ship goes away very quickly and your 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 cost goes up very quickly as well um and it's just you know i i honestly the burks are probably going to stay in service for a very long time and they're going to keep receiving upgrades mm. um the only real limiting thing to them right now is power plant um which uh, at, at this point with laser weapons starting to become incorporated into the navy and and the navy's official plans um the, the power plant capability on the Burke is the only thing holding it back. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, like laser weapons, as you say, it's going to be a major thing for the future. Um, the DDGX, as it happens, um, it has now kind of been confirmed. There will be no replacement for the Ticonderoga class cruisers. Um, judging from the press statement about the DDGX, the plan is that whatever design comes from this program, it will replace both the Ticonderoga and the Arleigh Burke classes um, in terms of the, the mission set that it carries out. Um, I mean, the, the Burke is fairly close in size to the Ticonderoga, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. But obviously, they are... the, the original concept and obviously the, the, the sheer amount of weapons carried by the Ticonderoga is, you know, it, it's a capability that I'm, I know the US admirals were not keen to lose. Um, you know, ultimately they, they could have replaced um, the Ticos at some point. They don't appear to be planning to now. It's going to be interesting to see whether this new design ends up being a hybrid destroyer or cruiser um, and, and whether it will be better armed than the Burke class, which arguably is probably already the most heavily armed destroyer. Um, you know, maybe you could argue there's a couple of Russian designs that are very close to it, if not slightly more powerful, but... Um, well, I Certainly. mean, in any other navy, it would be a cruiser. Um, yeah. The Ticonderoga displaces about 9,800 tons. Yeah. Whereas the Burke displaces... About uh, 8,000, uh, isn't it? Yeah, and with some of the new upgrade packages it's going to get over, it's yeah. it's going to get very close to 9,000. So uh, they're, they're very, very close in size at this point. Mm. Um. Which, again, is why that new DDGX program, that the main thing about them was, well, they're so close in size that we might as well just split the difference and, and, and create a single destroyer. Yeah. Which, which makes sense um, at the end of the day. Yeah, um, particularly with... The, the, more, the more you procure, the cheaper it gets. What we saw with the F-35, it's, it's why the Zumwalt class ended up being so ridiculously expensive per ship. Yeah. And particularly with the fact that the US Navy has reintroduced frigates now to its lineup with obviously the 20 ships of the Constellation class either under construction or in planning. Um, I think budgetary wise, it makes sense to have frigates and destroyers rather than to be trying for frigates, destroyers and cruisers. Um, obviously, that was something the Americans were able to do during the Cold War because there was funding and, pol and political willingness for funding for that kind of a, a fleet setup but um yeah um i think generally speaking even the russians are recognizing at this point that cruisers are not the way forward um they're... yeah because the russians can't afford to build cruisers yeah yeah that's the thing isn't it i mean they're the, the russian the russian issue is a bit different because they don't have the money to do these things mm. Yeah. I mean, most of the stuff they focused on is upgrading older platforms um, built during uh, the Soviet era, or yeah. just immediately post-Soviet. And they're, they're, they've obviously been building a lot of frigates uh, recently. You've had, you know, um, Admiral, what was his name? Um, Admiral Gigorovich. You, you and... think I know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was hoping you'd know. Um <laughs> You've had two, two smart, major not frigate that classes and uh, a couple of other designs coming through. And obviously their leader class, uh, which is supposed to be their DDGX, um, 
to all intents and purposes, is a cruiser-sized vessel and is armed like a cruiser, but they have also designated it a destroyer. Um, so there, there seems to be some sort of similar train of thought going on both, you know, with the Russian Defense Ministry and, and the U.S. Defense Ministry there. Put a lot of missiles on boat, boat becomes very useful. That's basically the end result of, <laughs> yeah. of most development programs of the last 20 years. Um, just why I sometimes get confused with um, Royal Navy uh, ship procurement. Um, they definitely seem to be taking a, a, a at least an aggressive uh, development plan to focus on the older type of, um, of thinking, at least with naval warfare. Um, whereas at least at least the U.S. and Russia and and even China somewhat is going towards this um, this this one type of of ship that can that can pretty much do everything. Yeah. And and then then a, of course an auxiliary class. Mm. Uh, and our last uh, news piece for today's episode: um, French President Macron has announced that the French military force operating in Mali under Operation Barkane. Uh, is to be completely overhauled and a new force to be deployed. Um, details as to what exactly he means by that haven't yet been released, um, but obviously that is a fairly major announcement. Uh, France has been involved in Mali for several years now and has more recently had the assistance of uh, the UK uh, with both uh, ground support and uh, Chinook helicopters assisting with uh, various airlift operations across Mali. Um, Clearly, the situation in Mali is not going as well as France had hoped. Um, and, you know, like I say, it will remain to be seen what what details, uh, what changes are going to be made to uh, Op Barkane um, and, and what this new force will look like and what its aims will be. Yeah, that's definitely going to be something interesting to see, especially as Sub-Saharan Africa um, becomes not, not a new battlefield but um more of a a new interest area for all these parties and that is all for today um so all right it's uh yeah yeah so um yeah i think that's everything uh thank you for watching and listening i know we're now we we had a uh actually a fairly smooth rollout to all of our uh all of our podcast streaming platforms and Smooth, and and thank says. you so much john for for <laughs> making that making that somehow work don't know oh, how you work that magic but I, you, it, but it worked yeah i was gonna say you you say it was smooth i, I spent so many hours banging my head into the desk trying to uh fight yeah, with the but IT from, systems. From, from an exterior perspective it <laughs> smooth, which, is, which is all we need at the end of the day yeah, you, you you can't see the storm if it's a cardboard box. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Uh, we are now uh, available on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Index, um, and of course we are still uploading the uh, visual version of this podcast to YouTube for those of you who want to uh, watch us talking on there. Um, if you guys have any suggestions, please do tweet me at DefenseGeek um, and uh, I will have a chat with these guys and see what we can do about uh, getting ourselves on other platforms in the future. Um, it's been really good to see the, the analytics for the first week or so since we managed to get the episodes uploaded. Um, you guys have been really uh, 
really, really keen to listen. We've had a, a, a big jump in viewer numbers uh, on YouTube and, and uh, obviously on Spotify and Apple as well. Um, so really pleased to see that and really glad that you guys are listening in and, uh, and enjoying it. Yeah, so thank you everyone for listening and we will see you in two weeks' time.